Hello and welcome to a brand new season of More. Join me and my guests as we read the second book in the Hunger Games series, Catching Fire. I'm super excited and I can't wait to read some more of the series. So let's get started, shall we? Okay, and welcome back to another episode of More. Hopefully this one will be a little longer because last time we barely scratched like 15 minutes. So yeah, it's just me and today I have a small bag of kettle corn. Small bag of kettle corn with me. That's my guest is kettle corn. They're not going to say anything, but yeah. Um. Anyway, we finished... Uh, we finished chapter three, where Katniss finally spoke to Haymitch, was like, hey, this is what's going on. What do I do? And Haymitch is like, you gotta marry him. You gotta like kiss the boy, but also like marry him, you know? So that means that I, as of this point now, am no, I'm no longer a team Gil because it's giving like Romeo and Juliet vibes when Romeo should, I mean, when Juliet should just go on with like uh, the Montague guy, I think. I don't know. I haven't read the Shakespeare book in a while, so <clears throat> we're going to go with that. But yeah, so basically they're heading to the tour and Peta, she has to marry Peta. That's what Haymitch says. That's like the only option, you know? But yeah, okay. So uh, chapter four, page 45. So let's continue. We slog back to the train in silence. In the hallway outside my door, he must give me a shoulder a pat and says, you could do a lot worse, you know. He heads off to his compartment, taking a smell of wine with him. In my room, I remove my sod and slippers, my wet robe and pajamas. There are more in the drawer, but I crawl, crawl into the covers of my bed and my underclothes. I stare into the darkness, thinking about my conversation with Hamish. Everything said about the capital expectations, my future with Peta, even his last comment. Of course, I could do a lot worse than Peta. That isn't really the point, though, is it? One of the few freedoms we have in District 12 is the right to marry we want or not to marry at all. And now even that has been taken away from me. I wonder if President Snow will insist we have children. If we do, they'll have to face the reaping each year. And wouldn't that be something to see the child of not one but two victors chosen for the arena? Victor's children have been in the ring before. It always causes a lot of excitement and gener generates talk about the odds that are not in the family's favor. But it happens too frequently to be about the odds. Gail's convinced capitalism on purpose rakes the draws to add extra drama. Given all the trouble I've caused, I probably guarantee my any child of mine a spot in the games. I think of Hamish, unmarried, no family, blotting out the world with drinks. He could have had his choice with any woman in the district, and he chose solitude. Not solitude, that sounds too peaceful. More like solitary confinement. Was it because having been in the arena, he knew it was better than risking the alternative? I had a taste of that alternative when they called Prim's name on Reaping Day and I watched her walk the stage to her death. As her sister, I could take her place an option forbidden to our mother. My mind started frantically for a way out. I can't let President Snow condemn me to this, even if it means taking my own life. Before that, though, I tried to run away. What would they do if I simply vanished? They disappeared into the woods and never came out. Could I even manage to take everyone I love with me? Start a new life deep in the wild? Highly unlikely, but not impossible. I shake my head to clear it. This is not the time to be making wild escape plans. I must focus on the victory tour. Too many people's fate depend on my giving me a good show. On me giving me a good give bleh, on me giving a good show. Dawn comes before sleep does, and there's Effie rapping on my door. I pull on whatever clothes are at the top of the drawer and drag myself down to the dining car. I don't see what difference it makes when I get up since there's a travel day, but it turns out that yesterday's makeover was just to get me to the train station. Today I'll get the work for my prep tea. Why? It's too cold for anything to show, I grumble. Not even District 11, says Effie. 
District 11, our first stop. I'd rather start in any other district since this was Rue's home. That's not how the victory tour works. It usually kicks off in 12 and then goes into sending district order to 1, followed by the Capitol. The victor's district is skipped and saved for the very last. Since 12 puts on the least fabulous celebrations, usually just a dinner for the tributes and a victory rally in the square, where nobody looks like they're having any fun. It's probably best to get us out of the way as soon as possible. This year, for the first time since Hamish won, the final stop on tour will be District 12, and the Capitol will spring from the festivals. Try to enjoy the feed like Hazelaid said. The kitchen class staff clearly want to please me. They prepare my favorite. Oh my gosh! It's her, it's her stupid lamb. Ugh, it's the lamb stew with the dried plums. Bro, like, get a new favorite. This, it sounds gross. I will not, I'll stress this, and I can't stress this enough. I find this highly repelling. I don't like, it just sounds gross, you know? Stew with dried plums. Like, I know maybe for sugar, but, like, stew is not supposed to be sweet. It's supposed to be savory, you know? So just keep the lamb. Just lamb stew. But no, we had to add the dried plums to it. Okay. Whatever. Fine, fine. It's fine. What's their favorite? Dried plum. <sighs> lamb stew with dried plums, along with other delicacies. Orange juice and a pot of steaming hot chocolate wait at my place at the table. So I eat a lot and the meal is beyond reproach, but I can't say I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm just annoyed that no one but Effie and I have shown up. Where's everybody else, I ask. Oh, who knows where Hamish is, says Effie. I didn't really expect Hamish because he's probably just getting to bed. Cinnabon was up late working on organizing your garment, Carve. He must have had over a hundred outfits for you. Your evening clothes are exquisite, and Peter's too is probably still asleep. Doesn't he need prepping? Not the way you do, Effie replies. Dang! Effie, stop it. It's like, it's like 9 a.m. You can't just be roasting Katniss. Basically, she said you need a lot more help, like, with your style than... Um, Peta does because Peta's already good, which is like crazy because she's just saying, "Girl, like you." She's not saying that she's dirty this time. She's just saying that like she is not very. I don't know if it's approachable or not very like hmm, forward or like ready for like to be seen by the districts. So she's basically saying, "You need like oh, <laughs> oh my gosh." Okay, what does that mean? It means I get to spend the morning having my hair ripped off my body while Peta sleeps in. I hadn't thought about it much, but the arena, at least some of the boys keep their hair, whereas none of the girls did. I remembered Peta's now, as I bathed him down the street, very blonde with sunlight. Once the mud and blood had been washed away, not only his face remained completely smooth, not one of the boys grew a beard, and many were old enough to. wonder what they did to them. If I feel ragged, my prep team seems in worse condition, knocking back coffee and starting brightly colored, ooh, and sharing brightly colored pills. As far as I can tell, they never get up before noon unless there's some sort of national emergency, like my leg hairs. I was so happy when I grew back in, too, as if they were a sign of things could turn to normal. I run my fingers along the soft, curly hair on my leg and give myself once over to the team. None of them are up to their usual chatter, so I can hear every strand being yanked from its foliage. I have to soak the tub of a thick, unpleasant smelling solution on my face and hair being plastered with creams. Two more baths followed in less offensive concoctions. I'm plucked, scored, and massaged and anointed until I'm raw. Flavius tilts up my chin and sighs. It's a shame Cinnabon had no alterations on you. Yes, we could really make you something special, says Octavia. When she's older, says Vena, almost grimly. Then he'll have to let us. Do what? Blow my lips up like, blow my lips up like President Snow's? Tattoo my breasts? Dye my skin magenta and implant gems into it? Cut decorative patterns in my face? Give me curves, tall, talons? Talons? Or cat whiskers? I saw all these things and more on the people in the Capitol. Do they really have no idea how freakish they look to the rest of us? 
The thought of being left in my prep team's fashion whims only adds to the misery competing for my attention. My abused body, my lack of sleep, my mandatory marriage, and the terror of being unable to satisfy President Snow's demand. By the time I reach lunch, where Effie, Cinnabon, Portia, Haymitch, and Speta have started without me, I'm too weighed down to talk. They're raving about the food and how well they slept on trains. Everyone's all full of excitement about the tour. Well, everyone but Haymitch. He's nursing a hangover and picking out a muffin. I'm not really hungry either, maybe because I loaded up too much on rich stuff this morning, or maybe because I'm so unhappy. Play around with the food, bowl of broth, eating only a spoonful or two. I can't even look at Peta, my, des- my designated future husband, although I know none of this is his fault. Nice uh, people notice, try to bring me into the conversation, but I just brush them off. At some point, the train stops. Our server reports it will not be for a fuel stop. Some part has malfunctioned and must be replaced. It will be required at least an hour. This sends Effie into a state. She pulls out her schedule and begins to work out how the delay will impact every event for the rest of our lives. Finally, I can't stand to listen to her anymore. No one cares, Effie. Dang! Well, I guess she had that coming to her, because she did say, like, you need some help. <laughs> that was foul. I snap. Everybody at the table stares at me, even Haymitch, who you think would be on my side, since Effie drives me nuts. I'm really unoffensive. Well, no one does, I say, and get up and leave the dining car. The train suddenly seems stifling, and I'm definitely queezing now. I finally exit the door, forced to open, triggering some alarm, which I ignore, and jump to the ground. I can fly on snow, but the air is warm and falling against my skin. The trees still green leaves are still green leaves. How far have we come in a day? I walk along the track, squinting against the bright sunlight, already regretting my words to Effie. She's hardly to blame for my current predicament. I should go back and apologize. My outburst was the height of bad manners, and manners matters deep manners matter deeply. See that five times fast. Matters matter No, I'm not gonna try. <laughs> But my feet continue on the track, past the end of the train, leaving it behind. An hour's delay, I can walk at least 20 minutes one direction and make it back with plenty of time to spare. Instead, after a couple yards, I think to the ground and sit there looking at the distance. I had a bow and arrow. Would I just keep going? After a while, I hear footsteps behind me, and it'll be Haymitch coming to chew me out. It's not like I don't deserve it, but I still don't want to hear it. Not in the mood for a lecture, I warn the clump of weeds by my shoes. I'll try to keep it brief. Can you take a seat behind me? Thought you were Haymitch, I say. No, he's still working on that muffin. I watch Peter as he positions his artificial leg. Bad day, huh? It's nothing, I say. He takes a deep breath. Look, Katniss, I've been wanting to talk to you about the way I act on the train. I mean, the last train. One that brought us home. I knew you did something with Gail. I was jealous of him before I even officially met you. It wasn't fair to hold you to anything that happened to the games. I'm sorry. His apology takes me by surprise. It's true that Peter froze me out after I confessed my love for him during the game was something of an act. But I don't hold that against him. In the arena, I played that romance angle for all it's worth. There would have been times when I didn't honestly know how I felt about him. I still don't really. I'm sorry too, I say. I'm not sure exactly what for. Maybe because there's a real chance I'm about to destroy him. There's nothing to be sorry about. You were just keeping us alive. But I don't want us to go on like this. Doing each other in real life and falling into the snow every time there's a camera around. Because so if I stop being so, you know, wounded, we can take a shot at just being friends, he says. All my friends are probably going to end up dead. Refusing Peter wouldn't keep him safe. Okay, I say. His offer does make me feel better. Less du- dupli- Oh my goodness. Duplici- dupli- duplici- duplici- duplicity? Duplicitous? I don't know. It's just like, I don't know. Less something. I don't know. I don't know what she's feeling. Maybe like less guilty? Sure. Maybe like less two-faced. Maybe that's what she's trying to say. I can't pronounce the word. I'm not even going to try. But yeah. Um, I, it would be nice if he'd come with me, come this to me with, come to, (laughs) give me a second. 
It would be nice if he'd come to me with this earlier, before I knew that President Snow had other plans and just being friends was not an option for us anymore. But either way, I'm glad we're speaking again. So what's wrong, he asked. I can't tell him. I pick up the clump of weed. Let's start with something basic. Isn't it strange that I know you'd risk your life to save mine, but I don't know what your favorite color is, he says. Small smile keeps going to my lips. Green. What's yours, he says. Orange, he says. Like Effie's hair, I, I, I say. A bit more muted, he says. More like sunset. Sunset. I can see it immediately, the rim of the descending sun, the sky streaked with soft shades of orange. Beautiful. I remember the tiger lily cookie, and now that Pete is talking to me again, so all I can do but not recount the whole story about President Snow. But I know Hamish wouldn't want me to. I'd better stick to small talk. You know, everyone's always raving about your painting. I feel bad I haven't seen them, I say. Well, I've got a whole train of car full. He raises, he rises and offers me a hand. Come on. It's good to feel his fingers intertwined with mine again. Not for show, but for an actual friendship. We walk back to the train hand in hand. At the door, remember, we got to apologize to Effie first. Don't be afraid to lay it on thick, Peter tells me. So we go back to the dining hall, where all the others are still at lunch. I give Effie an apology, and I think it's overkill, but in her mind, probably just manages to compensate for my breach of etiquette. To her credit, Effie accepts graciously. Her head is clear I'm under a lot of pressure, and her comment about the necessity of someone attending to the schedule only lasts about five minutes. Really, I've gotten off easy. When Effie finishes, Peter leads me uh, down a few carts to see his paintings. I don't know what I expected. Larger version of the flower cookies, maybe, but this is something entirely different. Peter has painted the games. Oh, some you wouldn't get right away if you hadn't been with him in the arena yourself. Water dripping through the cracks in our cave, the dry pond bed, a pair of hands, his own digging for roots, others any viewer would recognize. The golden horn called the corny corn, clove arranging the knives as inside her jacket. One of the mutts, unmistakably blonde, green-eyed, one meant to be glimmer, snarling as it makes its way towards us. And me, I'm everywhere, high up in a tree, beating a shirt against the stones in the stream, lying unconscious in a pool of blood. And one place, and I can't place one. Half as high I look when his fever was high, emerging from a silver-gray mist that matches my eyes exactly. What do you think? He says. I hate them, I say. I can almost smell the blood and the dirt and the unnatural breath of the mutt. All I do is go around trying to forget the arena you brought it back to life. How do you remember these things so exactly? I see them every night, he says. I know what he means. Nightmares, which I was no stranger to before the games, now plague me whenever I sleep. But the old standby one, the one my father being blown to bits in the mind, is rare. That are relived versions of what happened in the arena. My worthless attempt to save Rue, Peter bleeding to death, Glimmer's bloated bloody, bloated body disintegrating in my hands. Cato's horrific end with the mutation. They're the most frequent visitors. Me too. Does it help to paint them out? I don't know. I think I'm a little less afraid of going to sleep at night, or I tell myself I am, he says, but they haven't gone anywhere. Maybe they won't. Hamish's haven't. Hamish doesn't say so, but I'm sure that's why he doesn't like to sleep in the dark. No, but for me, it's better to wake up with a painting brush and a knife in my hand, he says. Do you really hate them? Yes, but they're extraordinary. Really, I say. And they are. I don't want to look at them anymore. Do you want to see my talent? Cinnabon did a great job on it. Peter laughs. Later, the train lurches forward, and I can see the land moving past us through the window. Come on, we're almost to District 11. Let's go take a look at it. We go down to the last car on the train. There are chairs and couches to sit on, but it's wonderful that... Oh, what is wonderful that the back windows react to the ceiling so you're riding outside with the fresh air. You can see a wide sweep of the landscape, huge open fields, and herds of dairy cattle gazing them. So unlike our own heavily wooded home... We slow slightly, and I think we might be coming for another stop, when a fence rises up before us, towering at least 35 feet in the air, topped with wicked coils of barbed wire. It makes our back in District 12 look childish. 
My eyes inspect the base, which is lined with enormous metal plates. There will be no burrowing under those, no escape to hunt. Then I see the watchtower placed evenly apart, manned with armed guards, so out of the place, um, so out of place among the wildflowers around them. That's something different, says Peta. Rue did give me the impression uh, that District 11 was more harshly enforced, but I never imagined something like this. Now the crop begins, stretched out as far as the eye can see. Men, women, and children wearing straw hats to keep off the sun, straighten up and turn our way. Take a moment to stretch their backs as they watch our train go by. I can see orchards in the distance. I wonder if there, that's where a rue would have worked. Collecting the fruit from the slimmest branches at the top of the tree. Small communities of shacks, by comparison, the houses in the steam are upscale. Spring up here and there, but they're all deserted. Every hen must be needed for the harvest. On and on it goes. I can't believe it's high district 11. How many people do you think live here? Peter asks. I shake my head. In a school, they refer to it as a large district. That's all. No actual figures on population. But those kids we see on the camera waiting for the reaping each year, they can't be but a sampling of the ones who actually live there. What do they do? Have preliminary draws? Pick the winners ahead of time to make sure they're in the crowd? How exactly did Rue end up on the stage with nothing but the wind offering to take her place? I begin to weary I begin to weary at the vastness and the endlessness of this place. When Effie comes to tell us to dress, I don't object. I go to my compartment and let the prep team do my hair and makeup. Cinnabon comes in with a pretty orange frock powdered with autumn leaves. I think how much Peta will like the color. Effie gets Peta and me together and goes through the day's program one last time. Some districts, the victors ride through the city while the residents cheer. But in Eleven, maybe because there's not much of a city to begin with, being so spread out, or maybe because they don't want to waste so many people while the harvest is on. Public appearance is confined to the square. It takes place before the Justice Building, a huge marble st structure. Once it must be a thing of beauty, but time has taken its toll. Even on television, you can see ivy overtaking the crumpled facade. The setting of the roof, the square itself is rigged with run-down storefronts, most of which are abandoned. Wherever the well-to-do live in District 11, it's not here. Our entire public performance will be staged outside on what Effie calls as a veranda. I think that's how you say it. It looks like that. Um, veranda, the tiled expanse between the front doors and the stairs that's shaded by the roof, supported by columns. Pete and I will be introduced. The, uh, the mayor of District 11 will read a speech in our honor. We'll respond with a scripted thank you provided by the Capitol. If Victor has any special allies among the dead tributes, it is considered good form to add a few personal comments as well. I'd say something about Rue and Thrush, too, really, but every time I tried to write it at home, I ended up with a blank paper staring back at me in the face. It's hard for me to talk about them without getting emotional. Fortunately, Peta has a little something worked out, and with some slight altercation, it can come for both of us. At the end of the ceremony, we'll be presented with some sort of plaque. And then we can withdraw to the Justice Building, where a special dinner will be served. Okay, we're going to finish the rest of this page, then we'll be done for today. <clears throat> As the train is pulling into the District 11 station, Cinnabon puts the finishing touches on my outfit, switching my orange hairband from one of metallic gold and securing the Mockingjay pin I wore in arena to my dress. There's no welcoming committee on the platform, just a squad of eight peacekeepers who direct us to the back of an armored truck. Effie sniffs at the door as the door clings behind us. Really, you think we're all criminals, she says. Not all of us, Effie. Just me, I think. The truck lets us out at the back of the Justice Building. We're hurried inside, but I can smell an excellent meal being prepared. But it doesn't pluck out the, the odors of mildew and rot. They've left us no time to look around. As we make a beeline for the front entrance, I can hear the anthem beginning outside in the square. Someone clips a microphone on me, and Peter takes my left hand. The mayor introducing us, but the massive door opens with a groan. Big smile, Effie says, and gives us a nudge. Our feet start moving forward. Okay, so we're going to stop for today. 
Um, we finished page 58. We actually got decently far. I think that's like 14 pages, which is a lot more than like the three or four pages we read yesterday. But yeah, so, so far, I'm kind of scared. She's probably going to meet like Rue's siblings and everything, which will be super sexual. She's like mini Rue with a mini, mini Rue with mini, mini, mini Rue and all that stuff. But yeah, I, I, you know, I'm always excited to read some more of the Hunger Games and I hope we can finish it. We're going really slow this time, probably because we kept, keep getting distracted by all my guests, which are lovely, but they're a little distracting sometimes. So yeah, thanks for listening and we'll see you in the next one. Peace. Oh, bye. <laughs>for listening i hope you enjoyed the podcast today and if you have any comments questions or concerns email me at morebookquestions at gmail.com so see you next time bye